This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. We're going to focus uh, particularly today, not only, but mostly, on the 75th, an- 75th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, and, and really just in general our World War II veterans, because we have so much to learn from them. Uh, I had the honor on Wednesday, which was the 75th anniversary, to do my local show from the deck of the USS Midway, um, and there was a big ceremony there for all the veterans, so we got to talk to a lot of World War II veterans. So this is uh, on, on top of my mind, and there's a lot of really, again, important lessons that I think we can, we can talk about here. I want to start off with one of my favorite World War II veterans, one of my favorite people, I've ever met. I've talked to him a bunch of times. He's an amazing storyteller. His name's Bud Fink. Uh, I don't think he says it in this clip, but he was a tank commander in Belgium when he was 17. <laughs> I think maybe a little later we'll play that story of how that came to happen, but just he's, he's awesome. And I got to meet him in person a couple weeks ago as well. But anyway, I, I, I have this theory and, and I don't know, I'm sure I'm not the first to come up with that. I don't know how much has been written about it, though. But I have a theory that our World War II veterans were so strong and so humble and, and all the rest. And they were able to overcome so much because they were products of the Great Depression. I firmly believe that. So I asked Bud about this theory and, and what his take on this is. And, and I want to play uh, these two minutes for you here. Open New York City. And uh, New York City had a relief program, and that's what it was called, relief. And you got, I think, $25 a month, which paid for food, rent, whatever. I think that was the amount. It wasn't a hell of a lot. But nobody, nobody, no family would ever, ever go on relief, or if they had to, would ever admit to that. That was considered that you were an absolute failure, that you could not support your family under any con- You couldn't go on relief. My God, we had to go on relief for two weeks once, and my father was just out of work. And it was either that or stop, and we decided that we would. And we were on for two weeks, and in two weeks he got himself a little job, and my mother said, but God, call him up right now, Joe, just call... Let's get off this goddamn thing. And we did. And it was not a way of life that anybody wanted, I can assure you. Because uh, one thing that the depression, I think, did for everybody, it kept the family close. It really kept everybody close. And, uh, you know, in those days, families all lived within a radius of food. Few blocks of each other, aunts, uncles, 
and everybody helped each other, you know, and uh, it, it was a, a different world. We kids, at least in my family, we didn't even know there was a depression. But we were poor as church mice, like everybody else, but that was, we forget the way everybody lived, you know, and it was true, because everybody we know lived like that, everybody on the street. Wow. It was... Looking for work, that, parents were always. Yeah, that's looking. so. That's so interesting. So you didn't grow up, you know. Um, I didn't go with the word like bitter or angry that you were poor. It's no, it was just life. Of course not. We didn't know we were poor, and and we didn't know that there was a depression that that there was just no work out there, but. Oh, we didn't blame anybody for that. We didn't say, oh, well, it's the big, rich uh, capitalists who are causing... No, we didn't blame anybody. We just uh, figured this is the way it goes, and we got to wait till this damn thing is over. And uh, fathers took any job that came along the line. When I think of things my father... He sold stockings door-to-door once because... A friend of his had a little business that was going. I mean, he did, you name it, he did did it. I remember him coming home with a $10 bill at Friday and called the whole family together and showed him, showed us that it was, oh, my mother's my God, we'll live for a month. <laughs> Live now. And then, couldn't you just listen to him forever? Ah, oh, bud. I, I want to break down a bunch of that, but let me, let's back it up here for a second. Uh, I came across this poem the other day. It's a poem, we're going to do a poetry reading. From Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And he said, The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. I say it again. The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. Hustle, hard work, while others slept. Every, every athlete has heard this growing up, right? Uh, you're, you don't, you don't want to wake up at you know, 5 a.m. to go to the gym, but your competition is there, right? Your competition's training, so get out of bed, get to work. And, and I, I bring this up because we often look to wealthy people, as Bud was saying, or, t- or today we look to wealthy people and blame them for a lot of problems. Bud is like, you know, that wasn't even, even think about it. But we look at wealthy people and successful people and we assume that they were placed at the top. We think they attained by sudden flight their success. But we don't see that while everyone else slept, they were toiling upward in the night. I thought that was pretty cool and Bud uh, sort of referenced that. And uh, this is the one last line I want to read here. This is the opening line, actually. I'm sorry, the poem is called, uh, uh, what is the poem called? St. Augustine. St. Augustine. There's something, there's, an, there's more to it though. Hold on. Sorry. Longsworth, uh, the ladder. It's called the ladder of St. Augustine. Sorry. Uh, so I'm going to move the words around in the first stanza because it's kind of hard to understand. So th- this is, so it doesn't rhyme, but this is what he says. He says, St. Augustine, you have told us that if we tread beneath our feet all the past deeds of shame, we can frame a ladder out of our vices. Meaning all the bad things, all the mistakes, all the failures of the past, all of our vices. If we take them in and learn from them, then we can use them to make a ladder 
that we can climb to a better place. If we learn from the mistakes, and don't do them over and over again, of course, but if we learn from those past mistakes, right? If, if we, we tread beneath our feet all the past deeds of shame, then we can make a ladder out of them and, and learn and, and do something uh, righteous. And he goes on to say that the pyramids, from far away, they look massive and they look impossible to climb. But when you get closer to them, they're, they're really nothing but a gigantic flight of stairs. That's what, <laughs> that's what Henry Long, uh, Wadsworth Longfellow says. He's like, yeah, just the, the pyramids are just it's, it's a big flight of stairs. And he says the mountains, they look impossible to climb. But when you get closer to them, you see that the paths are, are cut into them. Mountains are made to be climbed, he says in the poem. So the point is here, don't, don't stress about your past mistakes. Don't stress about your failures. He says, don't consider them wholly wasted. Those are his words. Don't consider them wholly wasted if you can rise on the wreckage and learn from those mistakes. And I just think of that with our World War II vets. And every, they didn't go through mistakes, right? but they went through the Great Depression. And gosh, did they learn so much from that experience? And then, gosh, the opportunity came when they used those lessons. Could you imagine? I was talking to an Army vet the other day who was deployed for 15 months. 15 months without a break at all. There's no leave. 15 months. Okay, that's crazy because you get a lot of guys who get you know, the six-month deployment, the nine-month deployment, which is, which is crazy too. But then 15-month deployment. Okay, these World War II vets just deployed. There was no... <laughs> it's just deployed until the end of the war. I remember I asked Bud. I said, Bud, did you ever want to go home? He was, he was talking about how he was in a, in a tank in the freezing cold on Christmas in Belgium. I said, do you ever want to go home? He said, no, we were, we were just here. We, we were here and this is what we were going to do. <laughs> Not that he wanted to be there, but he just, this, this is where we are and we're going to do it. And I said, did you ever see a light at the end of the tunnel? He said, no, <laughs> it didn't matter. We got a job to do. We're just going to do it. These guys. Again, I believe the major reason we were able to win World War II is because the men who fought in it came out of the Depression and the women who served back home as well. I was talking to a World War II vet a while back, a year or so ago, and he said when he joined the military, he was given something that he's never had before in his entire life. And I'm thinking, gosh, what is it? I'm thinking maybe it's like, like a like a, maybe a gun, right? Like kind of gun, or maybe um, maybe it's maybe he's going someplace deeper with this, right? Maybe he's like he's gonna say responsibility or purpose, right? I've been given something when I when I joined the military when I was eighteen, but he lied; he was actually seventeen. I I, I was given something that I've never had before in my entire life, Mike. I'm thinking um, purpose, <laughs> and he goes a pair of pants, a new pair of pants. That was a luxury he's never had before in his entire life. A new pair of pants. Let that sink in. Let alone the bed, let alone the food. Pants. Never had it before. He was like one of eight, right? And every, the pair, every pair of pants he had was all hand-me-down eight times. So a uniform was a shockingly luxurious item. They were tough. They were the calloused hands of someone who works on an oil rig, not the weak manicured hands of someone who talks on the radio for a living or the safe space wuss blowing bubbles and coloring because someone made an opinion he disagrees with. How our World War II generation grew up, how they trained and fought and served just indefinitely while they were deployed was in some ways a, a step up from, from where they came from. 
But today, very few 18-year-olds would ever be able to survive as our World War II vets did because we've come out of a time of abundance and luxury and as much food and as many pairs of pants as you can imagine and leisure and all the rest. And I just feel like our World War II guys, they saw the challenge in front of them, taking on the Nazis and the Japanese at the same time, and they saw the challenge as if it was the pyramids from really far away. Seems impossible, but they just got closer, and they saw that the pyramids were just a giant flight of stairs. And they're like, all right, well, let's go. And they climbed one step at a time until they made it to the top, and thank God they won. I want to take a break. I want to come back and talk a little more about uh, Bud's experiences, specifically about what you just heard. one 888 Oh, and a little later... I want to share the story of, uh, of a picture from, the, from Tokyo Bay when General MacArthur signed the unconditional surrender of the Japanese. And there's one particular picture. And you look at the picture, and there's so many things to see. And you look at all these things, but there's one thing in that picture that no one pays attention to. I never noticed it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right? Once you see this thing in the background, now every time you see it, it's the only thing you see in the picture. And it has an incredible story. And we'll explain that coming up as well. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is Mike Slater. All right, so that last segment was big picture. Now let's talk specifically about about Bud. Who's the man? Bud Fink. Bud, the streets are paved with gold, Fink. I think we played his story a couple, maybe a year ago, where he told that one. We don't have time for that now. But how about the fact that there was welfare relief in New York City when he was growing up during the Depression. But he said you would never go on it. You would never go on it. Absolute final last resort. And if you went on it, it said it was a, you were a failure. He never went on it. But his dad did. Two weeks. Went on it for two weeks. And then he got a new job. And his, his mom said, call him up. <laughs> you go down to that relief office right now and you get off it. It was shameful to be on it. Today, it's it's... Gosh, it's a way of life for so many people. What a change. What a change in a, a couple generations. And I guarantee you, I don't know, and I don't know if Bud knows, but I bet that job that his dad got paid less than you got for relief. So relief, what did he say, 28 bucks a, a month? I bet the job that his dad got was, was 15 bucks a month. But it was enough. It was enough to get by. It wasn't nothing. So he got off the welfare right away. Have you ever seen the movie Cinderella Man? Right? You remember when he, go, he gets on welfare for a minute? And then he goes and he wins a, bo- wins a boxing match. And then he pays it back the next day. I mean, that's amazing. I know we've talked about this before, and I don't, I don't know how to word it properly, but... Well... So I'm at the Pearl Harbor Memorial in San Diego on the deck of the USS Midway. 15 years ago, there were 36 Pearl Harbor survivors there. This year, there were four. 
if someone joined the military at the age of 16 at Pearl Harbor, right? So they lied about their age. They turned 16. That means they're 91 today. Do you know where I'm going with this? I feel like our country in many ways is resting on our laurels. I feel like we, we rely on our World War II generation to, to define our, our national character, who we are, and the great things we've done. And I don't know, I, th- I think, I don't know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's, uh, we need to define what our, our great triumph is. I just feel like we're taking a lot of things for granted. And we think a lot of things are guaranteed, and we think a lot of things are automatic. And I, and I don't know what our, I don't know, maybe it's just because the World War II guys, it's pre- it was pretty obvious what they achieved. But I want to know what our generation's done to improve our, our national character, to, to make us stronger. What defines us today? Because when the World War II generation leaves us, let me give you a dramatic example. Okay, a super comically dramatic example. There's a preschool in Brooklyn for adults. Okay, not, not adults with learning disabilities, it's adults, full-grown men and women who want to go back to a life of preschool and you show up, it's Tuesday nights, you show up and you get a snack time and a nap time and play show and tell and play superhero and with blocks and glitter and glue and like what? And the founder uh, of the school and the teacher says it's, it's for adults seeking play and adventure and excitement in their life. That's pathetic. If you got to spend a thousand bucks for a five week preschool course to find adventure and excitement, you're, you're doing it wrong. And I just feel like this is, I mean, one student's a 33 year old Harvard law grad. She's a criminal defense attorney. And this is what she does on Tuesday night. She plays with glitter and Play-Doh. Now, now this is the extreme. And I just think it's, it's sad to see people lost in prosperity and so lacking of purpose. Roosevelt said, Teddy Roosevelt, he said, there is scant room for the coward and the weakling in the ranks of the adventurous frontiersmen. There's scant room for the coward and weakling in the ranks of the adventurous frontiersmen. Adventurous frontiersmen. We got many of those anymore? You know, the new thing in schools today is not to clap. You're not supposed to clap. It's too uh, anxiety. It triggers anxiety. So you're supposed to use jazz hands. Jazz hands creates a more inclusive atmosphere. Because clapping is too... To to uh, I don't know, <laughs> it's too loud. <laughs> All right, so we're like, what are we doing? We are a prepubescent society. It's weird. Especially, and it was just so obvious when you see our World War Two guys. It's like, oh, they are they are from a different cloth. They are cut from a different cloth. <laughs> Look at us. Like, what are we doing? This is why Seneca two thousand years ago he said, flee enfeebling good fortune flee luxury otherwise you will sink into the stupor of unending drunkenness he wouldn't even think of such a thing but what he's really saying is if you don't then you will sink into the stupor of adult preschool if your cold feet are kept warm by heated floors then you run a great risk if you're brushed by a gentle breeze but you who are struggling who are in the middle of adversity. 
Like a farmer's hands are calloused and the soldier's muscles are strong, you'll be ready to face the next hardship and better able to prepare a friend for theirs. That's Seneca. That's the truth. That's our World War II generation. This generation, no doubt about it. That's why they were the greatest generation. So I don't know. What's, what's our, our adversity? What's our adversity that we've had to go through that our greatest generation had? I don't, I don't know. The internet goes down for a minute. like Every once in a while. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter if you got some answers to these questions. I'd love to hear. Uh, I've got a lot more to do. I want to talk about fake news coming up as well and how fake the whole fake news story is itself. Fake news. Do that coming up. Spread the word. Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. Hello, Slater Crusaders. How are you? So, on our Facebook page, we made a video this week about fake news and the story about prop or not. Have you um, followed this? Prop or not? Prop as in propaganda. Prop or not? It's a uh, fake organization that pitched a study that they did to all the major newspapers. And the writer from the New York, excuse me, the New Yorker. Got the email, right, this, that was sent. Oh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, we just, uh, you know, we were talking to a senator who uh, commissioned a report on him, and, you know, we just wanted to send it your way. They, they said that we should send it your way because you would be super interested in it, blah, 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 like all this made-up stuff. And that reporter did not fall for it. He's like, I'm super busy, but send over this report you got. And he read the report, and he's like, well, this is just, this is, this is nothing. This is, this is all, this is garbage, what you just sent me, but okay. So he ignored it. That was back in October. A couple weeks go by, he opens up the Washington Post, they didn't. They they did fell for it, right? They they absolutely fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. And they wrote a big story: Russian propaganda effort helped spread fake news during election. Experts say, and the experts in the article were this fake anonymous group. That story was one of the most shared stories they wrote all year. Um, most popular story of the week. People of influence sharing it including the former uh, Obama, former White House advisor, sh- shared it and, and said something like, why is this not the most talked about story in the, of, you know, of the year? Or whatever. Like, and it was total fake. It was all fake. So, so think about this. Like, think of how meta this is. The Washington Post writes an article about fake news and the spread of fake news and the prevalence of fake news. And that story itself is fake news. What's like very like out of out of uh, what's the movie with the top spinning in the not the Matrix but you know it's like what like, what the heck how could a, fa- a story about fake news is fake news on the so called real news so the writer from the New Yorker knew it was fake he could smell it from a mile away because it was so obvious but the Washington Post so badly wanted it to be true that they ignored the obvious obvious signs that it was fake now talked about that on the video we made uh, Inception thank you. Talked about this in the uh, the Facebook video from, I don't know, maybe made it Wednesday. And two days later, the Washington Post came out with a correction uh, saying uh, yeah, the proper not group is, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, uh, 
I maybe we don't. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> so they basically admitted that uh, that was indeed fake news. So the real news wrote a story about fake news that is itself, in fact, fake. I want to play this video coming up a little later. We don't have time in this hour, but I want to talk about what this whole fake news thing is really all about. And we got to talk about some categories here. And I'll just give you the short of it. The left and just media in general is very afraid that people are no longer going through the gate, right? So the media, CNN executives and Fox, everyone, they're gatekeepers. And everyone to get the news had to go through the gate, right? But now people don't have to go through the gate anymore. Just think Donald Trump doesn't have to go on CNN. He has way more Twitter and Facebook followers than, right? So he doesn't need, he doesn't need CNN anymore. So he can bash them and all the way. So people don't need the news, like the, 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 the gatekeepers. So everyone's going around the gate. So people in the media need to get people to, they need to funnel people back through the gate again. So the way to do that, one of their ways is to call everything fake. Now, not only to call everything fake, but to call it dangerous. Hillary Clinton two days ago came out, maybe yesterday came out and said, lives are at stake because of fake news. And not, not just lives like I lost the election, lives like people are, gonna, people are dying because of fake news. Okay, so this is a matter of life or death. You can't go anywhere else for news other than through this gate right here. If you go anywhere else, people's lives are at risk. So in order to so say they've really upped the ante here. And to do that, they've confused a couple different things. They've confused purposefully in people's brains conspiracy theories. And then you have fake news. And then you have biased news. And they're acting like all those things are the same by calling them fake news. And then, but again, if you come through the gate, oh, this is the real news here. So we'll talk more about that coming up a little later. But this whole fake news thing, it's it's A, a way to, for the for the lamestream media to save their jobs, right? And um, to silence speech. That's the ultimate goal here as well. We'll talk a little bit about that coming up as the uh, member of parliament in the Netherlands was convicted of a hate crime for speaking in a rally about public policy that the court found was demeaning towards Moroccans. Demeaning and insulting, their words, demeaning and insulting towards Moroccans. He was sentenced uh, to, to, uh, for, for hate crime for hate speech. Okay. So they silenced speech. A member of parliament was convicted for talking about public policy. Okay. So they have no free speech in Europe and they're trying to go down that road here in America. So we'll outline all that a little more later, but I want to play this one clip from CNN. This anchor here, I guess she's doing a mini focus group of conservatives. And I just wish you could see how hideously smug this anchor is being. And the look She's giving this this one woman in particular, and she's shaking her head. And at one point, she puts her head up on her forehead. She's she's gobsmacked at at how stupid these dumb, dumb, dummy, dumb, dumb conservatives really are. And I wish you could see it, but you can kind of hear it in the tone of her voice anyway. So here, take it in. Voting is a privilege in this country, and you need to be legal, not like California, where three million illegals voted. Let's talk about that. I'm glad I brought that up, Allison. Me too, Paula. <laughs> So where are you getting your information? From the media. Where what, else which are we media? Some of it was CNN, I believe. CNN and said that 3 million yeah. illegal people voted Well, in it was coming California? all across the media. <laughs> all across. Well, CNN didn't do it, then they were being smart this time. Do you think that 3 million illegal people I voted? I believe in California that there were illegals that voted. How many? I don't. 
to tell you the truth, nobody really knows that number. But, but do you think three dozen or do you think three million? I think there was a good amount because the president told people that they could vote and it happened in Nashua. We caught some people yeah. that they went into Nashua and they said, the president said I can vote. I'm here illegally. Did you hear President Obama say that illegal people could vote? Yes, I did. Hear tell it. me where. On, on, uh, you can find it. Google it. You can find it on Facebook. All right. Hold on. I don't want to waste any more time, but anyway, I see where it came from, and it's uh, Fox Business Network deceptively edited a clip of Barack Obama to argue that the president encouraged illegal immigrants to vote when, in fact, he had said nothing of the sort when you go back to the transcript. You, as you sit here today, think that millions of illegal people voted in this country. You believe that there was widespread voting abuse. I think there was in some states. In the millions of people? California allows it. People they do not vote. allow illegal. You mean elite, You mean voter fraud? California allows. I believe there is voter fraud in this country. Okay, all right. Um, there, this California doesn't allow it, as in it's legal, but they most certainly turn the other way. Let me explain this as someone who lives here in California has gone through many elections in California. When you okay, so first of all, in California, illegal immigrants are allowed to get driver's licenses. Okay, when you apply for a driver's license, you also register to vote. Okay, it's one and the same. When you fill out the form to vote or to register to vote, you fill out the form, right? Name, address, whatever. At the bottom of the form is a little box that says, Are you a legal U.S. citizen? Yes or no. If you check no and you hand it in to the nice people at the DMV, a week or so later, you will get a letter in the mail at your address. And the letter says, I'm not kidding, the letter says, you registered to vote in California a week ago. It says on that form, however, or you marked on the form that that you are not a legal U.S. citizen. Is this true? And it gives you another box. Like another chance. Are you a legal citizen? Yes or no? So you get a second chance to answer that question properly. Wink, wink. Now, here's the kicker. If you don't say anything back, if you don't write anything back at all, if you take that letter and you rip it up and you throw it in the trash can, then your status has changed to legal. Automatically. Okay. The default is you are a legal citizen. That's how voting registration works in California. So, yes, illegal immigrants voted. We don't know how many, though. It's impossible to say, right? But to do this whole thing... Now, does Cal... Okay, so at the end there... I forget the anchor's name, but she's like, you're telling me they allow illegal immigrants to vote? And the lady's like, well, it, it happens. They allow... Well, I mean, I don't know. The story I just explained to you, is that allowing it? Kind of. Right? And you don't, have, you don't have to prove who you are or anything like that, right? So, I mean, they kind of allow it. (laughs) But no, I mean, no one says you're a legal immigrant. Come on in. Now, what about that video they're referring to with Barack Obama saying that illegal immigrants can vote? We talked about this when that happened. The short of that story is there was, it wasn't Univision, but it was some like internet Hispanic media group or something. And the reporter, this young girl asked this really awkward question. Like my illegal immigrant family members are scared to vote because they think the government will come and deport them if they vote. And the president responded with, no, that won't happen. And he goes on this like 
vague, like like long winding, weird answer about whatever and how other people need to vote on behalf of illegal immigrants issues and rights and stuff like that. So like weird, but the, the conservatives saw that and said, Mr. President, the proper answer there is, well, Mary, illegal immigrants can't vote. <laughs> so this girl's concern was, well, if illegal immigrants vote, will the government be able to follow them and deport them? And the proper answer is, well, illegal immigrants can't vote. Not this like four minute response of whatever, right? So it was a really awkward thing. He didn't say they couldn't vote. And in the context of the question, it was all very weird. All right. So that that's the best I could give you with that, that situation. But it was very easy for uh, outlets to to take that and say that the president's encouraging illegal immigrants to vote because he certainly wasn't discouraging it. Right. I mean, it was really, it was a weird moment, but that's what that, those people were referring to regardless. I'm more concerned about the arrogance of the anchor here talking to these people that they're like, they're so stupid when the real news, right. Is pitching stories. Like I shared earlier from the Washington post that is itself fake. Listen, it's all, I was talking to someone about this the other day. It's all confirmation bias. This is, this is a human being thing. We all search out things that fit our framework. This is what humans do. People on the left and people on the right, we're all human beings. Okay. We like to go find things that confirm our opinion already because then we hear it and we think, oh, I agree with me. That's what I've been saying all along. Darn right. Right. We like that's just that we like it. We like to search out things that we agree with and that makes us it makes us feel good. Okay, conservatives do it. Liberals do it. Everyone does it. We're humans. So the, the smugness of the CNN anchor as if only conservatives are stupid enough to fall for fake news and liberals never do. And there's no such thing as fake news that's ever on the left that ever appeals to you know, Hillary supporters in this last election. Oh, no, no, no. When CNN falls for it all the time, Washington Post fell for a fake news story about fake news. I just, I hate the smugness of it all. So what's the answer to it? Well, this is the, I'll just give you the conclusion of our Facebook video. We all have to be better consumers of the news. That's all. It's just responsibility. It's personal responsibility. We all have to be better consumers. We have to be able to, to, to spot bias and fraud from, from a mile away. We have to check sources. We have to get lots of different opinions and perspectives and outlets this effort to crack down on fake news is very dangerous. Any cure to stop fake news is worse than the disease. Because who's going to decide what's fake, what's real, what's true, what's right, what's wrong? Who's, who's going to be in charge of that? No one. We all need to be individually. It's a great responsibility, but that's how it works in a free country. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. got two minutes i want to use this as a setup for what we have coming up next on my local show the other day we were talking about this college course in swarthmore college called queering god feminist and queer theology 
And the whole question is, uh, is, is God a man? Is God a woman? Is God uh, a transgender person? Uh, it talks about queer writings and the tensions between feminist and queer theology and seeks to stretch the limits of gendering and sexing the divine, blah, 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 blah. So Raymond wrote on my Facebook page, he said, um, Ugh, can you not comment on queer culture or the value of queer literature? Since you obviously have no grasp of it, being a heterosexual male, it sounds very homophobic by degrading the value of it. Uh, okay, so first of all, you got the thing there, like, I can't comment on a thing because I am, in this case, heterosexual, right? So I, I can't even, I can't, how, you can't even speak to this. Okay, I want to talk about that coming up. Also, I offer no apology for mocking a course called Queering God. The course itself is a mockery of God and therefore of the truth, and it deserves to be mocked. And my big advice is, and this is the main theme of the next segment, like, you can be gay, I don't care, do whatever you want. But regardless of your sexual preferences or your sexual identity, you should just read all things. You should read all literature, not queer literature. The idea of queer literature is not helpful to anything. It's the balkanization of ideas. That's what's got to stop. And this ties into fake news as well. This whole fake news, fake controversy. The balkanization of truth and the balkanization, I shouldn't say that, the balkanization of ideas. There is only one truth. Talk about that next. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Wow, Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. So uh, I, I, let me just cut everyone back up to speed in case you just tuned in. So the other day we were talking about crazy college courses for the spring semester. And one of them from Swarthmore College is Religion 32, Queering God, Feminist and Queer Theology. The course description, the God of the Bible and later Jewish and Christian literature is distinctively masculine, definitely male. Or is he? If we can point out places in traditional writings where God is nurturing, forgiving, and loving, does that mean that God is feminine or female? No is the answer. <laughs> okay, course over. Write a one one word essay on that answer. No. Uh, this course examines feminist and queer writings about God. Explores the tensions between feminist and queer theology. What the heck? And what is what is what is feminist theology? Let alone queer theology. And seeks to stretch the limits of gendering and sexing the divine. Well, I, you know what? I, I like to stretch the limits. Of sexing the divine. It's, it's, it's one thing if you're just doing your run-of-the-mill sexing of the divine. But if you can really stretch the limits, that's what I need in, uh, in my college course. Key themes include gender, embodiment, masculinity, liberation, sexuality, feminist, and queer theory. What the heck? So, I was talking about that on my local show the other day. And I got a comment here from Raymond on the Facebook page. He said, Ugh, can you not comment? This is... That is okay, we're going to talk about that one sentence in a second. 
Can you not comment? See, that's such a fascinating formulation of that sentence. Can you not even comment on it? Not, you're wrong. Here's why. Let me enlighten you. Let's discuss. But can you not comment on it? Don't even talk about it. Not let me enlighten you. Just, whoosh, you can't talk about it. Why? You can, can you not comment on queer culture or the value of queer literature since you obviously have no grasp of it being a heterosexual male? It sounds very homophobic by degrading the value of it. So I'm a homophobe. Uh, it reminds me of a Q&A that was done with Milton Friedman, I think in Cornell University. And someone in the audience, they were talking about welfare and, and the problems with welfare. And someone screamed out in the audience, have you ever been on welfare? And he said, no. And the crowds are, oh, and he goes, but if I had cancer, I wouldn't demand that my doctor also had cancer. Right. That, like, that doesn't, like, I, but, but it's this, I'm going to pause that for a second. I'll get back to it. Uh, so as I said before, I will not apologize for mocking a course called Queering God, but let's talk about queer literature for a second. My advice to Raymond is don't, 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 don't do this queer literature thing. Just, just read literature. Just all of it. This is a sign of, of the balkanization of ideas. I was having a conversation with someone the other day about fake news and news in general, and we talked about it earlier, about how human beings don't search out information that is uncomfortable to us. We just don't. That's, that's against our nature. No, I'm, saying, I'm not saying it never happens, obviously, but it's against our nature to do that. We tend to gravitate towards people and books and shows and news that we already agree with. Because it makes us feel good. And we have this overdriving uh, or overpowering uh, desire to feel good. So one thing that makes us feel good is ice cream. So we eat ice cream. Another thing that makes us feel good is when we hear people agree with us. We like our beliefs reinforced. We like to hear someone say something and then respond with, yes, I was right all along. That's just, it's like, it's just in our nature. Now, when you go to college, the point of college is to challenge those ideas all the time, every day, nonstop. The point of college is to wake up in the morning and say, what belief do I have today that I'm going to challenge? And at the end of the day, you can either change your mind or strengthen your previous opinion and convictions. Both are good. That is the point of college. If you're not doing that, what are you doing? The point of college is not football games. Now, that's what it's become, which is why college is a joke. But the point of it is not to, to or the point of it is to have your views challenged constantly. So if, Raymond, you are gay and you take all these gay studies classes and you read queer literature, you're not challenging anything. You're only taking four years of reinforcing whatever ideology you already had. What's the point of that? What are you doing? That is a waste. So I'm not mocking. I mean, he says I'm being a homophobe. I'm not mocking you for being gay. I don't care. I'm mocking the concept of queer literature as opposed to just good literature. Oscar Wilde, Tennessee Williams, Virginia Woolf. That's just good. It's not queer literature. It's good literature, right? So 
you really, for your own good, you got to get away from that, that drive to, to only surround yourself with things that make you comfortable. And then to criticize, you know, everyone else around you for, for coming on. Anyway, uh, I want to, uh, I want to go a step further with this. I want to play this clip from the Joe Rogan podcast. This is Jordan Peterson. He used to be a professor of psychology at Harvard. Now he's at the university of Toronto. And he, in this interview, they're talking about college safe spaces and that whole culture and everything. But he makes some really interesting points that I want to break down a little more. So let's play the whole thing here with uh, Professor Peterson. A university isn't a home. That's not what it is. It's a place to be confronted by, I would say, often horrible ideas. You want to learn about history? You think that's going to be safe? Do you know what human history is like? It's an endless bloodbath. With you know, with with a certain amount of hopeful progress underlying it, it's it's a it's a it's a horror show, and great literature is like that, and 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 biology is terrifying, and physics is terrifying, and you want to be safe, it's stay home, stay home with your mom, stay home with your dad, don't come to university if you want to be safe, because don't even you, go outside. No, I don't know if you if you're going if the university is going to make you safe, then it ceased to be a university. So one of the things I try to do in my class, I have this class called Maps of Meaning, which concentrates on atrocity, basically, on Soviet atrocity and, and Nazi atrocity, mostly. And what I try to do in the class is to teach my students that had they been in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, they would have been Nazis. And had they been op- offered the opportunity to be an Auschwitz, Auschwitz camp guard, then maybe they would have leapt at it. And maybe they would have been in the sadistic, uh, in the more sadistic, proportion of the Auschwitz camp guard population. You think that makes you feel safe? It doesn't make you feel safe to know that Nazis were humans and you happen to be one of them. So I think that educators that tell students that they're offering them a safe space are doing them a profound disservice. And you don't... I'm a clinical psychologist, and here's one of the things you do to make people less afraid. You don't make the world safer. What you do is you... People tell you what they're afraid of, and then you break it into little bits so that they can go confront them. You know, so maybe they're afraid of going to a party, and you break that down. You say, well, do you know how to introduce yourself? And they say, well, I don't don't really even know how to shake someone's hand. And so then you practice having them shake their hand and introduce themselves, because maybe they weren't taught by that by their half-witted parents when when they were young, because they were ignored. And so then you say, well, maybe you can go to a party for half an hour, and all you have to do is introduce yourself to two people, and we'll call that success. And you build up their confidence and their confidence one step at a time. And what happens, the, the clinical literature indicates quite clearly, is you don't make people less anxious by doing that. You make them braver. It's not the same thing. You don't make the world and its horrors smaller. You make the person and their, their, their capacity to deal with horror larger. You encourage them. You strengthen them. That's what you do at a university. You arm people with arguments. You, you hone their intellect. You, you help them learn to write so they can marshal their arguments. You, you help them learn how to engage in intellectual combat because that's better than engaging in real combat. You make them, you make them hard and strong. You don't mollycoddle them and make them safe unless you're their enemy, unless you're trying to devour their spirit. And that's what we have in the universities. We have. It's awesome. Um, so the university is not a home. You hear that a lot from kids today uh, and college campuses when they're protesting, like the whole safe space thing, like this is my home. No, 
It's not. <laughs> it's not your home. It's a place to be confronted with very challenging ideas. History is not safe. As the professor said, it's an endless bloodbath with a certain amount of hopeful progress underlying it all. But there's nothing safe about it. This is why we played a video the other day uh, on my local show. I don't know if we did it here. Of kids at Arizona State University, they were asked, who's worse, Trump or Castro? And a lot of kids said Trump. And, and one guy said, well, Castro did a lot of great things for the world. <laughs> like, what? And that's because they were never confronted with the horrible things he did. Because it all has to be sanitized and made safe. But in the end, it's a giant lie. And it's so fascinating. This professor, he teaches a class in atrocities. And he teaches these kids that if they lived in, the, in Germany in the 30s and 40s, they might be Nazis. And the Nazis are humans. And you also happen to be one of those. A human. And you could say you would never get wrapped up in it, but many of those people back in the 1930s and 40s in Germany would have said the same thing. But this is the best part. He says when he deals with people with anxiety, he doesn't make the world more safe. That's impossible. It's a futile effort and a pointless one. He says he, make, he works to make the person braver. You don't work to make the world safer. You work to make the person braver. And isn't that what universities are supposed to do? They're supposed to increase people's understanding of the world, understanding of human nature, understanding of their own ignorance, and to make them more capable to confront it. But universities today and culture today, not just universities, culture in general does the opposite. It tries to sanitize the world. Which makes people not need to be brave. We did a study a couple weeks ago on how you need to learn to be brave. Do you remember we talked about Achilles and uh, Hector in the Iliad? So Achilles is the short of it. Achilles is a demigod, right? So he was born brave. So he goes into battle, charges into battle, head first, the whole thing. Hector was a mortal. He had to learn to be brave. To fight was not his instinct. He had to learn to be brave. And we all do. And universities and their coddling they're, they're making kids weaker. A great line we heard before we became a dad was, you can either prepare the boy for the, for the road or prepare the road for the boy. And you, you don't want to prepare the road for the boy. You want to prepare the boy for the road. We're not going to go in front of Jack, who's two months yesterday, and move this rock out of his way and clear this path and build this bridge for him to walk over this river. We're not going to prepare the road for him. We're going to prepare him for the road. We're going to teach him to jump and to swim and to run and to get back up when he falls. We are doing an incredible disservice to kids. And, it, and that's in college and it's leaking down to high school and, and, uh, and below and it's leaking up and out to adults as well. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. So talking about safe spaces being coddled preparing the way for the boy or the boy for the way and i want to compare that with this uh we played a clip earlier and i get another clip here of bud fink world war ii veteran he was a tank commander in belgium when he was 17 which is a ridiculous story in and of itself how that came to happen um but i asked him 
I think I, it's in this clip actually, but in case it's not, I think I said, but how did we win the war? How did, how is it possible that we won world war two? Here's his answer. How, but, but how did we win? I mean, you, you describe what you just did right there. How do you I'll think America you how we won? won? We had, you know, the army was basic army officer corps was basically made up of 90 day wonders. And you know something? They they were wonders. They the vast majority of them turned out to be damn good officers. And we had opportunity. Uh, Art was named Art Abramson. He was a second lieutenant or first lieutenant. And we were bivouacked in some woods, freezing cold. Everybody had frostbite. Everybody had scabies. And he was called back to the CP for. Um, a critique, and it was about a half mile away, and he walked back in the snow and the cold, opened the door to this farmhouse. They had a fire going in the fireplace. He walked in and passed out from the pain in his feet, from the warmth that suddenly hit him. And when he woke, he woke up, uh, they had taken his boots off, and they were going to critique him. Gave him a shot, and because... In those days, during that period, you were not allowed to be relieved unless you had 102 fever for 48 straight hours. That was wow. what the medics told us. That's the rules. Can you imagine going around with 102 fever with a freezing cold 48 hours? Well, that's the way you had to do it. Anyway, they critiqued him, and he couldn't get his boots back on because his feet had swollen up. He went over, tore up a blanket, and wrapped him around his feet, tied it with telephone wire. And he walked back to that tent, and he took command. That was our officer. That was our opportunity. That was a soldier. Let me stop there. Isn't that amazing? So compare that with the coddling nonsense that we have going on today. And that, that's his answer to the question, how did we win the war? Just, you know, a million, countless examples of that. I have a couple of minutes here. Let me, let me speak on this for a minute, and then we'll change topics. Um, so I was on the deck of the USS Midway, which is an old battlecraft, old uh, aircraft carrier in uh, San Diego. It's now a museum. And the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor was on Wednesday, and there was a big ceremony on the deck of the Midway. And 15 years ago, there were 36 Pearl Harbor survivors at that ceremony. This year, there were four. There's very few remaining. But I saw some uh, amazing things on that ship, not only talking to those survivors and also some other World War II veterans, but a lot of uh, current active duty service members. And there's something that will bring you to tears when you see you know, an 18-year-old sailor salute a 96-year-old Pearl Harbor survivor. And I don't know what makes me tear up more, the 18-year-old saluting the Pearl Harbor, the 96-year-old, or the 96-year-old saluting the 18-year-old. But man, they both have that connection. Patrick Henry, in his speech in 1775, he said, you know, the give me liberty or give me death speech. Everyone knows that line, right? Give me liberty or give me death. It was at a church in Virginia. Give me liberty or give me death. But people don't know the line before that, which is a way better line. And he says, it is in vain, sir. To, to extend this. What are we doing? He said, gentlemen may cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. 
The war has already begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Our brethren are already in the field. Now, there's important context to this. America at this time, was, it wasn't America. They were just colonies. And they were not unified at any stretch of the imagination. Patrick Henry was in Virginia. But he's saying our brethren are in the field. Now, brethren is a, um, used to mean, and still does, uh, people in the same religious sect. But the colonies were distinctly different, right? You, some colony, I mean, just look at the Ivy League schools. Harvard was Calvinist. Pennsylvania was Quaker. They're still called the Quakers. Uh, Princeton was Presbyterian. Brown was Baptist. Columbia was Church of England. Yale was Congregationalist, right? All the different Ivy League schools and all the different colonies had a different official religion. So they weren't brethren, right? People in Virginia, this guy's in Virginia. He's like, our brethren up north are, are already in the field. He wasn't talking about the Baptists. He wasn't talking about the Calvinists and the Quakers. It wasn't that. It was, it was something else. It was brethren fighting for freedom, brethren for liberty. That's what he was referring to. It wasn't religious brethren. It was a different kind of brethren. And I saw that clear as day with the active duty service members and our World War II veterans saluting each other. They are brothers. They are brethren in a deeply profound way. one 900 Let's build on their tradition. Let's build on it. We've got so much more to do. Mike Slater's show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. We're going to bounce around between uh, some World War II things, and I got one more story here to share about fake news. Next, I want to tell the story about uh, a picture of General MacArthur and the end of World War II. Uh, We'll tell you about that. But first, um, this whole fake news thing. Let me set a foundation here. There's, There's, for the sake of our discussion, four different categories of things we're talking about here. You have conspiracy theories. Number one. Then you have fake news. Let me bring. Let, let's uh, let's imagine it like a uh, like a ladder. So at the bottom of the ladder, you have conspiracy theories. Then just above that, you have fake news, and then above that, you have biased news. And at the top of the ladder, we have actual, well-rounded discussion and analysis and news. Okay, that's the top of the ladder. So at the so from the bottom up. Conspiracy theories, then fake news, then biased news, and at the top, actual, well-rounded analysis. And then on the side, uh, you have parody. Okay, but that's kind of a different thing. So the goal of the left here, if you will, is to make it seem like the old guard right, is the real news, right? the actual, well-rounded news. Uh, authoritative news 
and everything else is fake and evil and needs to be cracked down on and silenced. That's the goal of the left. Or the goal of the media gatekeepers, I should be more specific. Right. So a couple of examples here. So let's start with conspiracy theories. This is the bottom of the barrel stuff, right? Bottom of the ladder. This is Bigfoot, aliens, 9-11 truthers. Uh, the Newtown shooting was a government conspiracy. Pizzagate, right? Which is this, this the conspiracy theory that the Clintons are running a child sex ring out of the pizza parlor basements in D.C., right? Now, who believes these things? No one. Like a hundred people. But the media, the gatekeepers, need to make this seem like everyone believes it, especially conservatives. Like all conservatives believe these conspiracy theories. So they have to build them up. They have to lift the conspiracy theories from the bottom of the ladder to a step higher. What's a step higher? Fake news. So you hear a lot of people talk about Pizzagate as if it's fake news. It's not fake news. It's a conspiracy theory. That's very, very different. But they have to lift it up just the same. It's the same as the, they did with the alt-right, right? The, the media made this big thing about the alt-right convention, which was a week after the grand wizard Donald Trump was elected president. So they're, they're high off of this election, right? And they have a big conference in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and 200 people show up. 200 people. And it's like, oh, my gosh, a huge uprising of white supremacists in America. Um... 7,000 people went to last year's BronyCon convention, which is where adults dress up as characters from My Little Pony. 7,000. Every year in Cary, North Carolina, there's a Mermaid and Merman convention. 300 people every year show up to that. They dress up like mermaids. But 200 people show up to this alt-right convention and it's the greatest political movement in the country. Like, give me a break. Right. So, so that's the same thing. They got to lift conspiracy theory up to the fake news category. This is why Hillary, let me see if I can pull up her quote. I think this is like her first speech she gave. Uh, so, so this pizza gate conspiracy theory thing is a super underground thing that really no one believes in, but a couple crazy people. And, uh, someone went into one of the pizza parlors with a gun. It's like demanded answers. Right? So this is why Hillary said lives are at risk. Lives of ordinary people just trying to go about their days to do their jobs, contribute to their communities. It is a danger. It is a danger that must be addressed and addressed quickly. What is fake news? But this isn't fake news. Lives are at risk. They say this isn't fake news. It's a conspiracy theory. It's very different. Okay. So let's talk about what fake news is. Fake news is articles that go around on Facebook and wherever. Like uh, the big one was uh, the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. So these are fake, totally made up news stories going around Facebook and wherever that people make up to get clicks. And when they get clicks, they get a lot of money. The LA Times wrote an article the other day of two, like just out of college kids who sit on their couch all day. I'm not kidding. And just whip out these fake news stories. There's make up fake headlines, clickbaity headlines, and they make a lot of money. They said in the article that when they had 100,000 likes on their Facebook page, they made $40,000 a month. I'm not kidding. That's when they had 100,000 likes. Now they have like 2 million likes. So you can only fathom how much money they possibly be making just ripping out these fake stories. Crazy. So that's for money. The fake news stuff is for money. Now, just to be clear, the fake news in no way influenced the outcome of the election. Not in any way whatsoever. 
because people who would believe these stories were already voting for their person already. All these fake news stories did was reinforce their their already made decision. So no one was swayed by a fake news story because they were targeted only to so so pro Trump fake news stories were targeted to pro Trump people. Pro Hillary fake news stories were targeted towards Hillary people. They weren't targeted to the other side to sway them. That wasn't the point of them. The point is to get clicks, and you're only going to get clicks if you if you shoot it over to the people who would click it. So that's that's fake news. Then on the next ring up, you have biased news. What is biased news? All news. <laughs> all news is biased because we're all humans and humans are biased. And then on the side, you have uh, parody. Parody is like the onion and the Babylon Bee and stuff like that. And sometimes those stories get passed around as real, but that's, that's, like, that's, that's for humor's sake. It's not necessarily for money's sake, not in the same way that fake news is. This is just, it's, it's, they're jokes. But that's, that's not super relevant here. So here's, so that, that foundation is important. We got to define our terms here. Now, again, what's the goal here? The goal of the left, the goal of the gatekeepers is to take conspiracy theories, which very few people believe, and lift it up a notch into the fake news category. And then it's to take what they have determined as biased news, Fox News, The Blaze, and bring that down a notch. And put that in the category of fake news, right? So put everything, all everything that they don't want or don't like or want silenced, which is what I'm getting to, put it all in this big new category called fake news, throw in a little label of Russian propaganda like the Washington Post did the other day, and then call it dangerous, not only to our democracy and to our republic, but as Hillary Clinton did, dangerous to our lives. Lives are at risk. She says, well, goodness, if lives are at risk, then we got to crack down. We got to stop it. That's what she said. She said, uh, it is a danger that must be addressed and addressed quickly. What is everything that they deem fake? Who? <laughs> everything that who deems fake? You know, they. Well, who's they? The gatekeepers. Who are the gatekeepers? You know, the people that no one's paying attention to anymore. CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, all that, right? That's what this whole thing's about. Now, this is why you get calls for Facebook. Oh, Facebook, you need to crack down on it. Who decides what's fake or not? Now, there's obvious things that are fake, but any crackdown you do is worse than the disease, than the disease itself. Because once they crack down, as if that's even possible, but once you crack down, let's say you could on fake news, like why why stop it fake oh no let's let's go up the, let's go up the ladder let's how about facebook cracks down on conspiracy theories like pizzagate okay and the newtown shooting and 911 truthers all right uh then let's say they crack down uh, uh let's say they, they go one level they go one uh, level on the ladder up okay then they start cracking down on fake news stories okay they're like okay good we've accomplished that and then they start cracking down on biased news well, who considers it biased it's all biased, but it's biased from their perspective, which means the videos I make will be shut down because they're biased from their perspective. Very dangerous. Any disease, any cure here is much worse than the disease. Do you remember a while back, a couple months ago, there was a story of Facebook filtering out 
conservative stories from their trending stories, right? Everyone assumed that the trending stories on Facebook was an algorithm that was automatically come up. No, no, no it was a bunch of like interns in the basement of the Facebook building in New York City that were just coming up with stories. So that was a big controversy. Imagine that on steroids. If Facebook starts deciding what true news is or the FCC and the government decides what true news is. No, no, no. Way, way too much power. So the answer again is for all of us to be better consumers of news. That's it. It's got to be about personal responsibility. And if you're so mortified and offended that people believe fake news, then it's your responsibility to convince them of the truth. This is how it works in a free society. There is no other way. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater they did find him i didn't know if they did so gert wilders is a an elected member of parliament in the netherlands okay there's not some crazy like guy on the courthouse steps with a sandwich board like he's, he's a member of parliament in the netherlands and he was just charged sentenced with the with the crime of hate speech it's a crime. Now, here in America, we have hate crimes. But over there in America, hate speech is a crime. And I didn't think he had a fine or, or I thought he was just charged. I didn't know if there was a fine associated with it. It was $5,300, okay? which isn't a big deal. But I mean, yeah, sure, I mean, yes, it is. I don't mean to say it's not a big deal. I mean, you shouldn't be charged for anything. But here it is. What was this crime? He, in 2014, was at a rally. And he said, do you want more or fewer Moroccans in this city and in the Netherlands. And the crowd chanted, fewer, fewer, fewer. <clears throat> that's it. That was That's the crime. That's the hate crime. There's nothing more to it. That's literally it. He said, do you want more Mor- more or fewer Moroccans in this city and in the ne- Netherlands? And the people said, fewer, fewer. And he got sentenced, uh, charged with, with a hate speech. <clears throat> Why? Because that was demeaning towards Moroccans. So we have a, just, just you, you gotta be clear. This is a elected member of parliament talking about public policy at a rally. Now you're saying, well, it's later, talking about public policy. He's inciting hatred at a, at a political rally. Does that deserve being charged with hate speech? So I want to quote here again from uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson from University of Toronto, because there's a bill in Canada, C9, C-16, that would make it a crime to misidentify someone's gender. Now, this is already a crime in New York City. The New York City Department of Civil Rights uh, has has deemed it a crime. Uh, you can be fined up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars if 
a landlord or a business owner or someone, uh, someone in the government or whoever, misidentifies your gender. So imagine a uh, landlord. Uh, your landlord knocks on your door and says, uh, excuse me, sir, your rent is due. <laughs> sir, I am a woman. And they can file a charge or a claim at the Department of Civil Rights and that person can be fined up to $250,000. It's that simple. Businesses, landlords, whoever else. So that's already a crime in New York City. Like, I'm not a man. I'm a woman. Today I'm a woman. Like, well, yesterday you were a man. Well, today I'm a woman. Okay. So this is going to be the law in Canada. And uh, Dr. Peterson is speaking on this. He says hate speech laws are wrong. The question, not a question, but the question is who gets to define hate? Hate speech laws repress. They drive hate speech underground. And it's not a good idea because things get ugly when you drive them underground. They don't disappear. They just fester. And they're not subject to correction. He goes on to share the story about how he made some videos and uh, put them out on YouTube or wherever. And he says they got a bunch of response from family and friends and coworkers and the public. Uh, and he said, um, you know, people were reviewing my videos and criticizing them to death. This is why free speech is so important. You can struggle to formulate some argument, but when you throw it out into the public, there's a collective attempt to modify and improve that. So with this hate speech issue, say someone's a Holocaust denier. We want those people out there in the public. So you can tell them why they're historically ignorant and why their views are unfounded and dangerous. If you drive them underground, it's not like they stop talking to each other. They just don't talk to anyone who disagrees with them. That's a really bad idea. And that's what's happening in the United States right now. Half the country doesn't talk to the other half. And do you know what you call people you don't talk to? Enemies. And if you have enemies, you have war. If you stop talking to people, you either submit to them or you go to war with them. Those are your options. and Those are not good options. It's better to have a talk. And he goes on to talk about how he, um, he has over 20,000 hours of clinical practice as a psychologist. And he says um, the best conversations are the ones that are most difficult. He says... Uh, arguments with your wife you know it's it's if you really get down to it it's about something else he says what are you really upset about you might find that your wife is upset about something her grandfather did to her grandmother two generations ago that hasn't been resolved yet in the family you got to unpack it and there's a lot of ideas in our country that need to be unpacked don't drive them underground and the worst thing you can do is deem anything that you disagree with hate speech you're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Later, he said, is America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So uh, I promise in the next segment, I will tell the story of that General MacArthur picture in Tokyo Bay, the end of World War II. I promise I'll do it next. <laughs> I've been teasing it enough. I will pay it off in 10 minutes. Uh, but I want to wrap up this conversation about fake news and silencing speech. This whole fake news story is itself fake news. And the whole point of it is to ultimately silence speech and, and ultimately uh, criminalize it, I guess, which is what they have in Europe and in the Netherlands, as we were just talking about. 
Um, we, we see signs of it here in America. So this is an important article from uh, Roger, Roger um, Peichel. Pikey, Peichel. Sorry, I don't watch TV, so I never know how people's names are pronounced. Peichel. We'll go with Peichel. Roger Peichel Jr. Uh, he's a climate scientist. His name shows up in the WikiLeaks emails. So this guy, the scientist, wrote for the blog 538. This is the Nate Silver blog. But he was labeled a climate change denier. Wow. That's bad news. And there was an orchestrated campaign to shut him down, to silence him, to have him fired and, and unpublishable everywhere. So a staffer at the Center for American Progress, which is a far left group, wrote to John Podesta, Hillary's campaign manager or campaign advisor, whatever. Quote, I think it's fair to say that without climate progress, Center for American Progress, without climate progress, Peichel would still be writing on climate change for 538. So this is a great line from that scientist. He said, when substantively countering an academic's research proves difficult, other techniques are needed to banish it. More troubling is the degree to which journalists and other academics join the campaign against me. What sort of responsibility do scientists and the media have to defend the ability to share research on any subject that might be inconvenient to political interests? By the way, I'm sorry, I should have said this. What is this man's unconscionable stance on climate change? Well, he believes that climate change is real. He believes it is changing. He believes that human emissions contribute greatly to climate change. But, and this is his specialty, he says there is no evidence that climate change increases the frequency or intensity of hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or droughts. He says there's no evidence that those things have become more frequent or intense in the United States or around the world. In fact, he says, we are in an era of good fortune when it comes to extreme weather. Quote, this is a topic I've studied and published on as much as anyone over two decades. Now, my conclusion might be wrong, but I think I've earned the right to share this research without risk to my career. Now, this is a big, the reason, so, but, but what's clear about this, like Roger Peichel, he believes climate change is real. He thinks humans are contributing to it. He's, he's all for carbon taxes to try and stop it. The one thing he disagrees on is the, oh, real quick though, sorry guys, uh, the, uh, there's no more tornadoes or hurricanes now than there have ever, ever been because of, oh, burn him at the stake. Right? He deviates from the line just the littlest of a bit and that's it. Now, this, this is why, because the storm thing is very important. The storm claim from the left. Do you remember the New York Times met with Donald Trump like two days or three, four days after he won? And one of the reporters there, one of the higher up guys said, uh, but, but President-elect Trump, the storms are more intense than ever because of climate change. The storms are more intense. And Trump responded, we've always had storms, Arthur. <laughs> it's, it's a funny line. We've always had storms, Arthur. So this scientist was critical of one aspect of the UN's climate change report, just one. And that makes him a climate change denier because he doesn't call it fall completely in line. He even testified in front of Congress on his findings. And a few weeks later, the president's science advisor gave a 3,000 word response against 
what he said. And that rebuttal is still on the White House website today. So the White House, he says, put a target on his back and that isolated him from the scientific community and the journalistic community, all the rest. And he has been silenced because of it. So this is a systematic isolation of a person, and I'm sure there's others, and I know there's others, who dare to question the official view on climate change, even one tiny aspect of it. This is not science. This is not an exchange of ideas. And big picture, keep this in mind, if someone has a position that they are unwilling to have an open conversation about, what does that say about the strength of their position? Give you another example. We'll move away from climate change because the same type of thinking happens all the time. The Southern Poverty Law Center, they have been the source for the New York Times and all these other magazines and newspapers about all the Trump inspired hate crimes going on around the world, around the country, right? So they sent out a couple weeks ago a questionnaire to teachers across the country, 10,000 teachers across the country. And the question, there's a couple questions. One of them was Have you ever heard derogatory language? directed at students of color, Muslims, immigrants, and people based on gender or sexual orientation. 40% of teachers said, yes, they've heard derogatory language towards minorities. Now, keep in mind, build the wall counts as a derogatory statement towards immigrants, right? Build the wall. So but pretty broad, but 40% of teachers said they've heard that. And they roll with that and all the rest. But they never printed and they never reported on another question that they asked. And the question was, have you heard derogatory language or slurs directed to white students? 20% of teachers said they've heard that. But that never made the report. And it never made the report because it's all about the narrative. I'm trying to think of a good way to visualize this. And obviously everyone does this a little differently. But I imagine a straight line, right? It's a timeline, okay? So straight, thick, bold, black timeline going across your, your mind's eye. This line is called the narrative. As things happen, right, as we move along the timeline, right, in real time, the only things that stick to it are the things that fit the narrative. So all, like, things are happening. Tons of things are happening all the time. Way more things than we could ever grasp, right? So there's tons of things happening. But if it doesn't stick to the line, then it's like it never happened, right? And so it doesn't fit the narrative. The line is the narrative. If it doesn't fit the narrative, then it just flies right past it. So the only things that stick to it are things that fit the narrative. So the narrative is Trump's win is leading to an increase in hate crimes towards Muslims. So all the stories against about that fit the narrative, a girl getting hijab ripped off, hits, even if it's not true, which some things have turned out not to, uh, it hits, hits the But all the stories of white people being called whatever race, that's that fit the narrative. It goes right by the timeline like it never happened. It's gone. All right. So things are just being thrown at this line. But only things that fit the narrative ever stick on it. Those are the only things we ever hear about. So there you have the Southern Poverty Law Center not wanting to, uh, well, give the full story. I'll give you one last example here in in the context of, in the the time, in the um, theme of hiding information. I'm sure you heard about this the other day. The Pentagon did a study last year. They found $125 billion dollars. In administrative waste, there's a couple things about the story. Now, you may have heard that headline, $125 billion in administrative waste at the Pentagon. Now, two things. This is not waste in like fighting the wars, right? Where 
you know, you get to the end of your fiscal year and you have to fire up, fire all your ammunition. Otherwise, you're not going to get as much ammunition next year. So you just blow through the bullets or whatever so that you can claim more. Or like the embassies that are built that are costing hundreds of millions of dollars. That's like totally wasteful and out of control. That's a, that's a, this is 125 billion in bureaucratic waste. This isn't the fighting in the war part. This is just the bureaucracy. 125 billion a waste in waste per year. Per year. That's what the report found, but they did not print it because they were concerned that Congress would cut the budget by, I don't know, say $125 billion, which is the cost of the Department of Agriculture, which doesn't sound like a big one, the cost of the uh, Department of Agriculture, but Department of Agriculture is in charge of food stamps. So the Pentagon wasted the entire food stamp program's budget, $125 billion per year, just on administrative waste. Just bureaucratic waste. So that's on top of the cost of the bureaucracy. And then you have the waste within the bureaucracy. $125 billion a year. Now that's bad enough. But then to hide that report from Congress and from the American people is even worse. So this is the point of my segment here. It's the hiding of information. It's the hiding of the full story and the full truth. Right? It's a story about how climate change activists will will silence anyone with a different opinion, even a slightly varying one, and hide their information and then celebrate that we got him off the blog, right? So people won't be reading him anymore. Thank goodness. You have the social justice warrior activists who refuse to acknowledge things that don't fit their narrative. And you have the Pentagon hiding anything that makes them look bad. It's the hiding of the full story. It happens all the time. And this is one major reason why almost everything you read in the news is, is in a way, fake news. <laughs> because at the very least, it's not anywhere close to the full story. Keep that in mind. Everything you read, keep that in mind. 1-800-988-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, I promise when we get back, we'll tell the story of uh, that picture of Douglas MacArthur. You've seen it before. But there's something in that picture that you've never seen. or that it's, it's there. It's right there in the middle. But you've never noticed it before. And once I point it out, it's the only thing you're ever going to see in the picture ever again. I'll describe it next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, I'll pay this off. I promise. So, a lot of ship talk lately. I was I was uh, doing the show from the deck of the USS Midway on Wednesday on the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Um, there's a, a new ship in San Diego that was uh, unveiled just the other day. We have some Chinese ships in port. A lot of ship talk. Uh, I got another story here for you. This is a Pearl Harbor story that I've never heard before. I'm sure you've seen the picture of. General Douglas MacArthur on the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. This is the picture of the signing of the unconditional surrender of the Japanese at the end of World War II. The pictures of, of this moment are like, I would I'd so love to be there, right? The pictures are like crazy because 
like you have pictures of the Japanese officials and the Japanese foreign minister wearing tuxedos with top hats. They they look like Mr. Peanut, and it was just bizarre. And then the entire ship is full of American soldiers, and and on the deck they're lined in formation. But on all the areas up high, they're sitting over the edge like they're at a Bob Hope USO show. There's just so many weird things going on in this picture. But the most famous in this in this day, but uh, this moment, but the most famous picture of all is the moment that Douglas MacArthur was sitting at a desk in the middle of the deck on the Missouri. And you ha- it's from the side, right? It's taken from the side. So it's taken from MacArthur's right side. It's looking straight at his side, at the side of the desk. Behind him, you have the Americans lined up, about five deep. But there's also something else in this picture, and it's like a Where's Waldo picture. You don't see it until you see it, and then once you see it, you can't not see it. So if you look at this picture a million times, you'll see a bunch of really fascinating things, but you won't see this thing until I point it out to you. And then when I do, uh, it's the only thing you see. It's wild. So behind all these men, there's two parts of the ship, one on the right, one on the left. And they're super tall, but it leaves an opening in between them. And in this opening, you can see way off into the distance in Tokyo Bay. And way off in the distance is something that otherwise you don't even notice. But it's beautifully symbolic. Let me back it up. Pearl Harbor. The attack on it. 75 years ago, Wednesday. 353 Japanese planes attacked the fleet in Pearl Harbor. Three battleships were completely lost. Five were sunk or badly damaged. The USS Arizona, which is still at the bottom of the harbor, which is still leaking oil today, That's what you see when you go to the memorial. 1,200 men were killed in one blast on that battleship alone. 1,200 of the 2,400 who were killed that day. So that was the USS Arizona, but there was another battleship there. The USS West Virginia sustained seven direct torpedo hits and two direct bomb hits. 100 sailors died trying to keep her afloat. The commanding officer... Mervyn Benyon was hit by shrapnel and he was bleeding heavily. His men tried to get him off the ship, tried to get him to safety, but he refused to leave his post. He used one arm to hold his wounds closed and the other to command his men. And he bled out on that spot right there on the ship. He received the medal of honor. Another sailor, third class mess cook, Dory Miller was collecting laundry when the attack began. Long story short, he was ordered to man the machine gun, something he's never done before. And he did that until he ran out of ammunition. And then he started rescuing men from the burning water until the ship finally sank to the bottom of the bay. Real quick sidebar. I was talking to a World War II vet the other day, a Pearl Harbor survivor, Stu Headley. And I said, Stu, what's, what's the one image that is most vivid in your memory still today, 75 years later? And he said, swimming through the burning water. Burning water. There's oil on top of the water that was in flames. So, swimming, so jumping in and then swimming through burning oil water. What? 
Amazing. So back to the ship. Unsalvageable. Right? Sank right to the bottom of the bay. Totally unsalvageable. I mean, it was getting hit nine times. But the military was desperate. They needed it. So they dredged it up. Five months later, that twisted metal was pulled up from the bottom of the bay and it was sent to Seattle to be restored. And she joined the Pacific Fleet again in 1944 for the invasion of the Philippines. So, that picture of General MacArthur signing the unconditional surrender of the Japanese. You have MacArthur sitting at the desk. American soldiers lined up five deep behind him. And perfectly framed behind these men, way in the distance. And I can't, I can't even, how framed they are, because it happens to be two parts of the ship sticking out. So, so mostly in the way background, all you see are the two parts of the ship, but there's just this little sliver in between the two parts that rise up. There's a little tiny sliver. It's all you see, and you can barely see anything way in the distance. But if you look really closely, way off in the distance, the only thing you can see is the USS West Virginia. Like a phoenix from the ashes, that ship was the only Pearl Harbor veteran afloat in Tokyo Bay that morning. The one ship that saw the war begin in Pearl Harbor and watched it end in Tokyo Bay. And it's an amazing picture when you see it, because again, you don't see it. The whole time you look at this picture, you don't see it until now you will. And now it's all you see. And it's like she's just kind of peeking in. And because it's all in line, it's all perfectly in line because the camera's from the side of the desk that he's signing. It's, it's li- and it's a little bit higher, right? The ship is way up in the distance, so it's a little higher. It's like the USS West Virginia is just sort of peeking in through the, through the crevice there over the guy's heads and over the General MacArthur's left arm right to see the... Un- he's just peeking in on the whole thing. And good for her. If I can quote Jeff Gorell here, the West Virginia represented all that was good in the greatest generation. Her patience, her rise from decimation, her unbending resolve, and her victory over world aggressors. She reflected the lives of those who built her, manned her, called her home, and fought to protect her. The picture's on our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And you can see it. Spread it far. 1-888-933-93. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and you can see that picture there. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Later. Producer Steve and I were just talking about how pictures like like the one I'm just talking about, MacArthur, it's so crazy when you look at this picture and you don't notice the ship. And then when I tell you about the ship and you look at the same picture, it's all you notice. Like how how can that be? What what is up with the brain that that's how that works? It's wild. Um so share I, I wrote up, you know, a quick you know, analysis of what I just talked about. 
uh, on our Facebook page and you can spread that out there and, and have people experience that same thing. Really, really fascinating. And then they'll know the, the true story behind it too, which is cool too. Um, in similar vein, I want to share a story to wrap up the show about one of your favorite Christmas carols. And I'm going to share a story about it that will completely transform how you listen to this song. Uh, it's one of my favorites, my top five. I think it's everyone's top 10. It's in the top 10 for almost everyone. It's got to be. And I almost don't want to give away the ending, but, but I, I promise you when you hear it, it will either make the song like so dark you you can't ever listen to it again like like it's like it's off the table now or you you'll be so happy that i don't know like like almost like as a vengeful like i'm going to stick it to the man i'm going to blare this song even louder this year you'll have one one of those two reactions but i guarantee you'll never listen to it the same so we'll wrap up the show with that coming up in one segment but uh it's been interesting and i really didn't mean for this to happen but we've sort of just bounced back and forth between uh, a World War II story, because 75 years ago on Wednesday with Pearl Harbor, and a uh, a fake news related story was going back and forth. So, uh, we got one more fake news story. Um, let me back it up a second. So, I'm I'm a I'm a bit. I don't even want. I don't want to say this because this this brings in a lot of negative connotation. I'm a bit of a food snob. Not not that bad. Not that bad. I promise you, not that bad. The other day, I had two cinnamon buns. So, I mean, not that bad, but I, I think food's really important and almost everything that everyone eats is total crap, just absolute garbage. Couldn't could, like trash. Like it's a, it's a miracle that the body even can turn it into fuel. How just total garbage it is. And almost everyone is completely backwards when it comes to food and nutrition. Have you seen what your kid's school is feeding your kids if you don't pack them a lunch? Have you seen what the schools are feeding kids? It's slop. Total, total slop. It's, it's like you shouldn't feed your dog. I'm, I'm really, I'm not even exaggerating. Like you should not feed dogs this food that we feed human children. It's nothing but sugar. It's all sugar, just sugar all the time. So juice, just take OJ for instance, orange juice. It's just sugar water. I've done a whole segment on this before. I don't have time, but um, have you noticed that all cartons of owns, uh, cartons of OJ taste the same? Every carton of orange juice that you buy tastes the same. How can that be? Or I don't mean, I mean, there's different orange juices taste different, but let's say you buy only minute made orange juice. Every single carton of minute made orange juice tastes the same all year long. How can that be? <laughs> how can that possibly be this is what they do they take oranges squeeze them then they deoxidize the juice so that it doesn't go bad but the problem with that is it also takes out all the flavor and the nutrients so they they have this just deoxidized orange water and then they pump the whatever remains with chemicals and sugar so it's all just sugar water tropicana is owned by pepsi and minute Maid is owned by coke so every Minute Maid tastes the same, but also why does Minute Maid and Tropicana taste so different? Because they put in a different amount of chemicals, a different assortment of chemicals and sugar. 
right? But, but do you know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 not orange juice. <laughs> it's it's orange sugar water. So let's say you have a 10-year-old boy, right? And you give them a giant glass of sugar water before they go to school. And then they get to school and they eat a granola bar, which is just a stick of sugar. And then they have uh, pizza for lunch, which is just processed wheat with zero nutritional value. And then tomato sauce, which is just the lowest grade crushed up tomatoes full of sugar. And then processed cheese food that pff, they no dairy in there at all. And then chocolate milk, which is just sugar. There's just there's, there's sugar milk. And then for dinner, whatever, more sugar, right? Kids are everything. It's unbelievable. It's all sugar. It's like crack, right? So they, they eat the sugar and they go up and then they crash and they crash all day. And we wonder why kids have behavioral problems at school, right? They're one of two things, right? They're either hyped up and, and you know, high or they're, uh, and it's ADD and I like can't pay attention or they're sleeping, right? Totally asleep and lethargic and can't do anything. What do you think it is? It's, it's, it's sugar. So you throw that on top of all the other problems that kids have, right? Broken families, broken culture, failing schools, right? You throw that on top of that, we're just fueling them with nothing but sugar all day. What do we expect? Anyway, why do I bring all this up? A researcher at University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, found a bunch of documents. First time that they've been seen since the 60s. So there was a trade group called the Sugar Research Foundation. Okay, So it's a bunch of sugar lobbying people. They paid three Harvard scientists $50,000 in today's dollars to publish a review of uh, research on sugar, fat, and heart disease. Okay, so they're, they're, we're going to do, do some research here on the connections of sugar, fat, sugar and fat to heart disease. Okay? Now, these three scientists were paid by the Sugar Research Foundation. So they did the studies. The Sugar Review picked the studies that they liked, published the results in the New England Journal of Medicine, and gosh golly, wouldn't you know it, the studies minimized the link between sugar and heart disease and other problems, and they said that the main culprit is fat. Shocking. Same thing today. Coke spends millions of dollars in research to downplay the link between sugary drinks and obesity. Candy makers are funding studies that prove kids who eat candy weigh less than kids who don't. <laughs> right? Crazy. So one of those three Harvard scientists that were paid by the sugar industry went on to become the head of nutrition for the Department of Agriculture. And in 1977, he drafted the, the government's first uh, dietary guideline report. And obviously in it, sugar was just grand. How did he get away with this? This was in 1967. It wasn't until 1984 that the New England Journal of Medicine required studies to disclose where their funding came from. So in these documents that, again, were found just the other day for the first time since the 60s, one letter from a Harvard researcher was sent to the head of the Sugar Association that said, "We this is the letter, we are well, this is from the scientist, we are well aware of your particular interests, and we will cover this as well as we can. And the researcher then shared their drafts with the Sugar Association. And the sugar people wrote back, let me assure you this is quite what we had in mind. And we look forward to its appearance in print. And it went right to the New England Journal of Medicine and was treated as gospel. And now we pump our kids full of sugar all day. So you can take that a million different ways. We can talk about climate change from that. 
right? Which is all done. It's very similar, right? Where's the money coming from? Where's the research come from? Where do the grants come from? What do you have to say in order to get the money to keep your job? Things like that, right? So we talked about climate change a little earlier. You can apply that to that very nicely. I get from it fake news, right? Because the big, the big concern today is fake news. But it's all around us and it always has been and it always will be. So how do you get around it? So, I mean, how do you look at someone, you know, it's the New England Journal of Medicine. You must trust that. Well, no, you have to do your own research. You have to investigate yourself. We have to become better consumers of news and of science and of headlines. You can't trust anyone. <laughs> you can't trust anyone. You can't trust anything. Now, I don't know. Maybe that's a discouraging conclusion. I don't think it is. Not at all. It is your own brain. Don't rely on someone else's. Come to your own conclusions. Don't rely on other people's. Find the, the truth and the whole truth yourself. Don't rely on other people's search. Everyone's biased. Always. Impossible not to be. You can't stop it. So just work with it. And be so skeptical all the time. So the story I just shared about the USS West Virginia. Nice story, right? And there's no, there's a, it's of no um, you know, super importance, right? It's like, oh, it's a good story. But if, let's say that was a really important story. Uh, go look up the USS West Virginia. Like, like, double check my claims. Double check the years. Double check the fact that it was actually in Pearl Harbor. Go look at the picture itself. Now, actually, I put the picture up. Uh, so you don't have to do that much research on our Facebook page, but you know, go look at it and be like, Oh, is, is that really, you know what I mean? Like, that's just an example. Like you got to do it. I know Glenn's been preaching this for a long time. He's like, don't trust me. Do your own research. And that's so true. And I don't know. I just hear all this fake news stuff. And it's like, guys, don't be lazy. Like <laughs> everyone's going to stop being lazy. If you see a headline that seems too good to be true or too crazy or whatever, first of all, it's probably clickbait. So don't click it anyway. Just ignore it. Or double check it. So, you know, click it and find the quote and then search somewhere else and see if there's other places. Go to the source. We just got to be better consumers of news and we have to do our own research and investigation. Because this stuff, like from the Sugar Foundation, it's been going on forever and it will never go away. There's no government crackdown possible. It's all on us. And I'm fine with it. It's the only way it can be done. 1-800-760-K, excuse me, one 900 3393 I want to come back with a story of a Christmas carol that you've probably heard 20 times already that will completely change. You're, you're, you will never hear it, hear this song the same way ever again. I'll tell you about it next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusader is going to tell you a little bit of a story that has a connection to a Christmas carol. And once you hear this story, you'll never hear that Christmas carol the same ever again. So this is a warning because I really like this Christmas carol. And you've heard it a hundred times and I'm sure you like it too. Um, So once I say this, it will completely change. Maybe for the worse, maybe for the better. I don't know. It's up to you. So warning. 
Uh, we've talked, uh, uh, people, we've talked, everyone's talked about why the terrorists hate us. Why do the terrorists hate us? Um, a lot of reasons, but I want to go back to the foundation of Muslim, the, the Muslim world's hatred of America in, in, the, in a modern, the modern setting. Saeed Qutb was born in Egypt. He was not religious at all, certainly not a fanatic. He was a writer. He was a young writer. And in 1948, he traveled to America for two years. Right? And I just want to be clear. He wasn't religious at all. I mean, he was from Egypt, but he wasn't religious. After those two years in America, he went back to Egypt and became a fanatic. Joined the Muslim Brotherhood, which was pretty young, and uh, has since become the intellectual leader of the Islamic extremist movement, Saeed Qutb, Q-U-T-B. His writings influenced bin Laden and Zawahiri and ISIS and, ISIS and the Muslim Brotherhood today. He is the intellectual founder of the modern extremist movement. And it all happened from the two years he spent in America. Why? He hated jazz music. He said it's the music that the savage Bushmen created to satisfy their primitive desires. He was in D.C. and there was an elevator accident. And he heard someone make a joke of one of the victim's appearances. And he concluded that America suffered from, quote, this is in his memoir, a drought of sentimental sympathy. Americans internationally or intentionally deride what people in the Arab world hold sacred. <clears throat> he said, this great America, what is its worth? In the scale of human values, what does it add to the moral account of humanity? Nothing. He found that America was vulgar, materialistic, and promiscuous. He said the American girl is well acquainted with her body's seductive capacity. She knows her seductiveness lies in the round breasts, the full buttocks, and the shapely thighs, sleek legs, and she shows all this and does not hide it. She called them curvy Jezebels. He also said that in America, dreams can come true. And this scared him. This was bad, he thought, because people had dreams that did not have to do with praising Allah. He hated the modernity of America. He thought the modern obsession with science and invention, he didn't think that was progress. He thought it was going backwards because we did not praise the 7th century Muslim values that, that, that he did in, in his culture back in Egypt. So he went back to Egypt, joined the Muslim Brotherhood, and became a fanatic and the founder of the modern jihadi movement. Now, Slater, what about the Christmas Carol? Qutb went to Northern Colorado University in Greeley, Colorado. It was 1949, a dry town. And he went to a church social dance. Dry dance. And the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, came on. He was revolted by it. And not only by the song itself, but, but the fact that men and women at the dance danced to it cheek to cheek. That was his last straw. That is when America officially became the great Satan to the leader of the modern extremist movement. Baby, it's cold outside. It sounds odd to say that that's why they hate us, but that's one major reason. So you can listen to that song with a new appreciation. Slater Radio on Twitter. And you can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and like us there. I hope you have a great rest of your week. And we will see you next 
Saturday. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.